I now invite you to to please stand with us uh, for the reading of God's word. Our scripture reading today is from John 6, 14 through 22. This is found on page 891 in your pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to take that one home as a gift from us. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to, ta- to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. The next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. If I haven't had the chance to meet you before, my name is Bill Gorman. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Community at the Brookside Campus, and we're really glad that you are with us here this morning. Before we dive in more deeply to the text that Jude just read for us this morning, uh, I want to just pause and uh, do a pastoral prayer as we do at many times throughout the year. Uh, As a church family, we recognize that we are first and foremost um, as followers of Jesus, is that we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. That's our, our first and primary identity, and yet we are also citizens of the United States. And uh, in acknowledgement of that dual citizenship throughout the year, at significant moments in our country's calendar, uh, we pause and pray for our country. So uh, at MLK Junior uh, Day, we pray for justice in our country. On Memorial Day, we offer gratitude for those who have given their lives in military service, uh, on Independence Day, we, we pray in gratitude for this place that God has given us to live. Uh, at Labor Day, we give thanks for uh, the good work that God has entrusted us with as part of his good creation plan. Uh, at Veterans Day, in appreciation of those who have served in the armed forces. And today, not only is it Father's Day, but it's also Juneteenth, and we pray today in gratitude for the, the marking of the anniversary of the, the ending of legalized enslavement of image-bearing human beings in our country. Now, this has more recently become a federal holiday, um, but it's been practiced for a long time. And so if you're less familiar with it, let me just read you a little bit of background on this day. This is the first celebration of Juneteenth began at the same courthouse in Galveston, Texas, on the same date where one year before enslaved people in Texas learned that the Civil War was over and they were now free. On these steps, Union Major General Gordon Granger had read, The people of Texas are informed that in accordance with a proclamation from the executive of the United States, all slaves are free. This involves an absolute equality of personal rights and rights of property between former masters and slaves. And then the following year on that day, June 19th, 1886, the Emancipation Proclamation was read aloud and those gathered processed to the Methodist Episcopal South Church for a public prayer meeting. And so today we 
remember our brothers and sisters who gathered for that prayer day, and we continue in a spirit of prayer and thanksgiving this morning. Father in heaven, we give thanks that on this day in June 1865, you heard and at long last answered the prayers of so many of our brothers and sisters in Christ who were in bondage and the prayers of those who had worked so diligently, many at the cost of their own lives, to see slavery abolished in our country. We lament and grieve the unspeakable evil of slavery in our country and ask, Lord Jesus, that you would continue to heal wounds that still persist even now as a result of that evil. We put our hope in your grace and mercy that is able to heal, to renew, and to restore. And now as we turn our attention to the words of Scripture, would you make us quick to listen? Would you fill us with hope? Would you help us find comfort and satisfaction in Jesus alone? And it is in his name that we pray, by the power of the Holy Spirit, who dwells in us and among us. Well, I want to begin this morning by asking you to recall the worst storm that you have ever been in in your life. So I don't know if it was on a road trip, a camping trip, maybe for you the worst storm you've ever been in was uh, the storm that blew through a few weeks ago where we had those kind of uh, small tornadoes actually pass through this part of town uh, and cause some damage. But think about that worst storm that you have ever been in. Now, take that storm and imagine that you are on a boat on a lake, something, a boat like this, um, except there's no outboard motor, there's a sail, and, and you know, it's, you're just out there in the midst of this terrible storm on a boat. And you begin to get a sense of, of why the disciples, why Jesus' 12 disciples were so afraid when the storm blew up on the lake. Now, it's something that the people on this particular cruise ship, they didn't have to imagine. There's no audio here, but watch this ship as it almost tilts over. This is an incredible, I mean, you kind of get seasick just watching this. But it's going to come over here in a moment, and this ship almost turns completely over onto its side. Isn't that incredible? Can you imagine being on a boat? I think you'd be a little afraid. As I watched that video on YouTube this week, I noticed there was kind of a, a, a caption contest sort of going on down in the comments for that video. Uh, this was my favorite. It says this, Well, Bert, we've stayed for 25 years. We're both in our 90s now, but we worked hard all our lives. Now we can finally take that relaxing cruise we've always dreamed of. Oh, Petunia, yes, let's. I need something to take my mind off my horrible fear of death. Um, and this is where the disciples are. In, in a storm, in a boat, on the lake, they think... Uh, now that they see a ghost walking to them. That's the thing, when they first see Jesus coming to them, now it's like, oh, great, now we have a ghost to deal with in the midst of all of this. And they are afraid. But then something they never expected happened. It's a sign to them, a sign of life. It reveals who Jesus truly is. And that's what John, one of Jesus' closest followers, one of his best friends, who was in that boat that evening on the lake with them, it's what John wants us to see this morning and what he's written for us in his gospel. And John's gospel is really, in his writing, he's answering two questions in, here in John chapter 6 and then on every page of his gospel. And those two questions are, who is Jesus? And what does it mean to entrust ourselves to him? 
Who is Jesus, and what does it mean to believe in him, to trust him, to give our lives over to him? As you read through the Gospel of John, as we spend time in this series, those are the two questions that John has for us. It's why he's written, to show us who Jesus is and what it is to trust in him, to put our faith in him, to believe in him. It's what Jesus is doing here. So what is this story of 12 terrified guys on a boat tell us about who Jesus is and what it means to believe in him? Well, that's what we want to look at this morning. So if you haven't already, I'd invite you to grab one of the pew Bibles, um, turn to John chapter 6 there. Um, You could even just go on your phone, just type in John and the number 6, and you'll get right to it on any number of uh, websites will take you there. But I'd love for you to follow along with me as we look at this account in the Gospel of John. Now, this was an unforgettable day in the lives of the disciples, and it ended up being a pretty terrifying night. This was an unforgettable day because they had just watched Jesus do one of the most incredible miracles of his entire ministry. They were out in the wilderness on the other side of the Lake of Galilee. There's all these people gathered there, at least 5,000 men, probably 15,000 people, and Jesus feeds them all with just some kid's lunchable, basically, right? Five loaves, of a couple of fish, and Jesus feeds this entire crowd. This is an unforgettable day. And in fact, John tells us that after the crowd witnesses this moment of Jesus feeding all these people, that they try to make him king by force. They recognize him as the prophet. Your Bible may even have that word prophet in a capital P. It's, a, it's almost like a formal title. This is echoing back to the Old Testament. It's actually something that we hear about and learn about from Moses, one of the the leaders of God's people, the one who led them out of slavery in Egypt, and they're in the wilderness, but they recognize that Jesus is that prophet like Moses, one who delivered God's people out of enslavement, and then God feeds them in the wilderness. And they're making these connections in their minds. Hey, we are out in the wilderness. We are being fed miraculously somehow. Maybe Jesus is the one who's going to lead us out of oppression and enslavement to Rome, just like Moses did all those years ago from Egypt. Maybe he is the deliverer, the prophet, the Messiah to come, and they want to make him king by force right there. Jesus recognizes this, but he withdraws. I mean, he he literally, John says, he runs for the hills. He goes into the mountains by himself, why? You see, they want to make him king by force before he has gone to the cross. But Jesus will not be king without the cross. In fact, this was the temptation that the evil one, the accuser, Satan, had put to Jesus at the very beginning of his public ministry In the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, early on, all the Gospels record this time when Jesus spent 40 40 days and 40 nights, actually mirroring the 40 years and 40 uh, that the Israelites were in the wilderness, but he spends these 40 days, 40 uh, nights in the wilderness by himself. And at the end of that time, the evil one comes to him to tempt him. And one of the temptations is that he brings him to this high place, and he shows him all the kingdoms of the earth, and he says, if you will just bow down and worship me, Jesus, all these can be yours. It's, it's again, it's the same fundamental temptation that, Jesus, you can be king without the suffering of the cross. But Jesus resisted that temptation then, 
He resists it now. He knows that the mission his father has given him is to go to the cross to die. That's the only way that he can fulfill his mission is to die and rise again. But the people don't get that yet. They want to make him king by force right there. And so he goes into the hills. He withdraws alone. But the disciples, they go down to the beach, and they get in the boat, and they start heading across the lake. They, Jesus is away, just the 12 of them. They're in the boat. They're heading across the lake. And John sets the scene for us. He tells us that darkness falls. It's nighttime. It's dark. They're rolling across a dark lake. Have you ever been a really dark place, like in a national park or something like that, where there's no natural, you, like, it gets really, really dark without electric lights of the city. Darkness falls. A storm comes up. Their waves are blowing. The wind is howling. And they are afraid. Now, the way that John has crafted the telling of the story, though, it ought to call our minds back to an earlier part of Scripture. Another time where there was darkness and a chaotic sea. It calls our minds all the way back to John chapter, or excuse me, to Genesis chapter 1. And John is intentional. Lots of students of the book of John have recognized this, that John in many ways is modeling his book on that early story in the Bible, especially Genesis chapter 1. He begins this gospel by saying, in the beginning was the word. Genesis 1-1 begins, in the beginning was God. And then you get to verse 2 and we read these words. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Darkness, a watery, chaotic deep. Those are how you describe, those are the words you use to describe a disordered, chaotic world apart from God's life-giving, ordering presence. And John tells us then at this point that the disciples had already rowed three to four miles, which would put them in the very middle of the Sea of Galilee at its widest point. Now, the average walking pace uh, on land for humans is about three miles an hour. And so if Jesus is walking out on the water to them, uh, if he was walking on land, it would take about an hour. I don't know what the average walking pace on water is. I don't know if it's slower or faster. Uh, I imagine it was a little hilly that day with all the waves, so maybe it took Jesus a little longer to walk out there. But an hour or so after they started, Jesus comes to them walking on the water. King Jesus is on the water. He's, put, he's literally putting the watery, the chaotic, watery depths under his feet. And he comes to them, he meets them out there on the lake, but they are terrified. And of course they are, right? I mean, of course they are. They, they are just fighting to keep their boat from capsizing, to keep themselves from drowning, and now they see what looks like a ghost coming to them. Great, now we've got to deal with this too. In their fear, they do not recognize that it is Jesus who is with them. I love the observation that Dutch scholar, theologian Herman Ritterbos makes at this text. Take a look at this. I think he puts out such great insight here. He said, they, the disciples, had never learned to know Jesus in that way. And thus, in that place, in horrendous situation, they had not expected him at all. 
They didn't come to know Jesus as one who would be with them in the midst of their trouble and their fear. And so they had not expected him in that place. They weren't looking for Jesus coming to him in that moment. But Jesus is there anyway. And this is what we need to hear from this passage today. That when you are afraid, expect Jesus. When you're afraid, expect Jesus. As we look at this passage more closely today, we're going to see that three truths emerge from this text that help equip us to be able to expect Jesus when we're afraid. Three truths that help equip us to expect Jesus when we're afraid. And the first one that comes emerging out of this text this morning is that we need to acknowledge that we are afraid. Just acknowledge the simple truth. We are afraid. I mean, again, you, you see this in verses 17 through 19, where John kind of describes this. His darkness had set in. A high wind had arose. The sea began to churn. And they are afraid. And clearly, again, we've been pointing this out in the storytelling. This is a moment when any of us would be afraid, right? You put us in that situation, of course we're going to be afraid. But I wonder if there aren't lots of moments in in our lives we don't even recognize how much fear, worry, anxiety is actually driving us in all kinds of places. Sissy Goff, who wrote a great book called Raising Worry-Free Girls, I have two girls that I'm helping to raise, uh, my daughters, and so I read this book, Raising Worry-Free Girls. It's a great book, but she tells the story in the book of, she was at a conference speaking, and she's in the back kind of waiting to go on, and she's talking to another one of these conference speakers. This woman is in her 40s. She has five kids. She's written two books, and she's telling Sissy in this moment, you know, I, I've had these lifelong stomach aches, and I'm only just now at 40 years old recognizing that there's, that's, they're not caused by a medical condition but they're rooted in this deep-seated anxiety that I've experienced for years. I, I just wonder how many of us live in those places of fear or worry and anxiety, and we're not even fully aware that we are afraid. How often that happens. And again, there's different language to describe this, and some people, I think it's helpful to put this on a spectrum of fear, worry, anxiety. One of the people who writes about this, she points out that anxiety can be looked at as a spectrum, right? So, a thought might start out as a worry or as a fear, progress to a worry, and then potentially turn into an anxiety. Because fear is typically about something in particular. Like you are afraid of spiders or snakes or heights, so there's like a, a particular thing. I'm afraid of that thing or this particular situation. Whereas then worry tends to be more broad, more general, and it's usually future-focused. When we talk about worry and use that language, we're typically thinking about something in the future that's going to happen that's going to be bad. Something bad happening in the future that we are worried about now. And if worry, though, really takes root in our lives, it can really become anxiety, which is kind of a state of being. Fear and worries pop up in specific moments, but anxiety pervades everything. Again, Sissy Goff, I think, is helpful here. She defines anxiety this way. She, a state of perpetual worry and constant pressure. So I would say I'm afraid of heights. That's, that's a fear of mine. 
In fact, when we were coming up on our 10-year anniversary of, of having this building as our church home, and when we were doing the renovations, we had uh, a big uh, scaffolding um, put up around the steeple because they were working on that. And there was this opportunity once where we had the chance to go climb the stairway all the way up this uh, scaffolding. You, I'm sure there was a great view up there. I got about halfway up, and I, could, like, I physically could not take another step. I was like, this is high as I'm going, guys. So this is a very specific fear of heights. But I don't typically worry about heights. I'm not, I don't wake up in the morning and worry, oh, am, am I going to have to stand on some precipice today? It's just something that, that grabs me if I am, happen to be at the Grand Canyon looking over the edge of the Black Canyon of the Gunnison, and all of a sudden I'm freaked out. But where I tend to worry is more about money. So that's, when I think about what's, where does worry show up? It's just around money. That I worry about, okay, something's going to happen in the future. Something in our house is going to break. Uh, the car is going to break down. Something, you know, there's a, a medical bill or whatever, and we're not going to have enough money to pay for it. So that's more of that general worry that there's something will happen. We're not going to have enough to, to do. That's where worry shows up. But that typically for me has not been a point of anxiety, though. It's not an, an overwhelming kind of constant thing. So what's the point of, of sharing all that? However you experience being afraid, whether it's just in a, a particular moment of fear, whether it's in a place of worry, whether it is in an ongoing place where you feel anxious regularly as a state of being. Jesus wants to meet you there. He wants you to expect him there in your worries, in your fears, in your anxiety. And we can learn to expect Jesus in those places because of the truth that we see next, and that is that we are never alone. If we're going to expect Jesus when we are afraid, we have to come to believe deeply, like in our bodies, that we are never alone. We talked last week a little bit how faith is not something, it's often the way we think about faith in our culture, that faith is what you have to have when there isn't any evidence or even in the face of contradictory evidence. But this is not at all how the Bible talks about faith. Faith is not belief in the absence of evidence or in the face of contrary evidence. Faith is like, a, it's a different type of knowing. A legitimate, different kind of way of knowing, of coming to know someone. So by faith, we have to come to know and trust and believe that we are never alone. That Jesus is always with us. That God is always with us by the power of Spirit. And again, you see this in the text this morning when you turn to verse 19. It says, Jesus was coming. He was coming near the boat. He was with them. I mean, in this particular moment, he's physically embodied with them. Coming near to them. And they were afraid, but he said to them, It is I. Don't be afraid. It is I. Don't be afraid. Now, this is a really significant moment in John's gospel and in this particular story for a couple reasons. Because you can translate that little phrase, it is I, kind of with two different sort of nuances. You could translate literally the phrase Jesus says, I am, do not be afraid. That would be the most literal way to run to that phrase. I am, do not be afraid. You could also more colloquially translate it like, hey, it's me. Guys, it's me. Don't be afraid. It's me. Don't be afraid. 
And I think both of those are actually really important for us to see this morning. The sense of the familiarity that Jesus has with his disciples. Guys, it's me. Don't be afraid. And also his sovereignty that's revealed in this language of I am. And that language I am, it's really key in John's gospel because it echoes back to Exodus, again to the life of Moses. Because Moses, again, is this reluctant leader of God's people. God calls him and says, you're going to be the one who's going to lead my people out of Egypt, out of slavery, into the promised land. And Moses has lots of objections to that. He doesn't want to do it. But at one point, he says to God, who should I say when the people ask me, when Pharaoh asks me, who should I say sent me? What name should I say? And in that moment, God reveals his name. And he says, tell them that I am has sent you. Speaks to God's sovereignty, that he is the source of all being. He's the the root of all creation, that he is the one who has given all life. He is life itself. I am has sent you. And Jesus comes to his disciples in that moment of fear as they're on the chaotic sea that's mirroring this disordered, unordered state of creation before God's spirit comes, and he says, it is me. But the way he says it is, I am. I am. Do not be afraid. And we need both of those pieces, don't we? We need both God's sovereignty, his power, the fact that he is the creator, the source of all life, and we need his familiarity. Because if if we only had the familiarity, uh, that wouldn't be enough. Like if they see this guy walking toward him on on the ocean and they're starting to freak out, they think it's a ghost, and the guy says, hey, it's me, it's Ron from the fish shop on the shore. Now they're even more freaked out. This guy really is a ghost. It's Ron. He must have drowned. He's coming back as a ghost, talking to us. Guys, it's me. On the other hand, if all we had was this kind of sovereignty power, just a booming voice out of the clouds came down, it is I am. Don't be afraid. They'd also, I think, be more freaked out. The uniqueness of this moment is Jesus comes to them as an embodied human being who is truly and fully God, truly and fully human. It's just I am. It's me. Don't be afraid. And psychiatrist uh, Kurt Thompson, who's a follower of Jesus, who's written a number of really insightful books, The Anatomy of the Soul, Soul of Shame, Soul of Desire. I, we had a chance to have him with us here at Christ Community last fall, back in October, and he was speaking to our staff, and he made this really powerful observation about fear and aloneness. And he says, when we talk about things that we worry about, that we're afraid of happening in the future, he says, we tend to name events. So we'll say, what what, what are you afraid of? What are you worried about happening in the future? We might say something like, losing my job, or my child getting sick, or, you know, getting in an accident, whatever it might be. Loss of a loved one. We point out what we're actually afraid of is not so much the events themselves, but if those, the emotions that those events will cause, the emotion those events will cause, and that we will be alone in those emotions and that they will never end. 
And here's the dots that he connects. He says, our brains are anticipation machines. Our brains are constantly anticipating what is going to happen in the future, and they do that based on the experiences that they're having in the present and in the past. So our brains are using the data that we have accumulated in our lives and in our past and in our present and anticipating what the future will be. And this is where he drives us home. He says, if you are afraid of being alone in those emotions in the future, what that tells you is that you already feel alone now. You already feel alone now. Because that's what your brain is taking the experiences of your past and your present and saying, I'm worried that you're gonna, I'm going to feel just as alone in those moments as I do right now. I don't think we often recognize how alone sometimes we truly feel. Jesus wants to meet you in those places. Uh, the gospel meets us in those places in those places of aloneness and fear. And the gospel tells the truth. The gospel tells the truth. If you are truly alone, then you have every reason to be afraid. But the gospel also says you are not alone. Someone has come near. Jesus is with you. You are never alone. And Scarlett Hilbedal wrote this amazing little book called Afraid of All the Things. Tornadoes, cancer, adoption, and other stuff you need the gospel for. It's a great little book. Her mom was actually a writer for Saturday Night Live, so she is hilarious. Like, the book is laugh-out-loud funny, but it's also profound in its explanation of gospel truth. Actually, a number of our women are reading this book together in a, a book study uh, over the summer. So some of you probably are familiar with this book, but she writes early on. She says this, The gospel tells me I can't fix myself. The gospel tells me I can't protect myself, but the gospel tells me I can rest, knowing that Jesus walked into this broken, sad, scary place to rescue me, love me, and cast out my fear. And he did, and he does, and he will. He did, and he does, and he will. Because Jesus is with us, because he walked into the broken and fearful places in our lives, this means that we can actually train to expect him. We can know through the lens of faith that he is with us all the time, and we can train to begin to expect him more and more. Jesus is with us, but we often don't recognize him, but we can train to expect him. Because again, the disciples in the boat, they see Jesus walking toward them, but that only makes them more afraid because they don't recognize him. It's only, and this, I thought that was so, so key, it's only after he speaks to them that they let him on the boat. So this is verse 19. They saw Jesus walking on the sea, and they were afraid. But he said to them, it's I. Don't be afraid. And then verse 21, then, then they were willing to take him on board. And at once the boat was at the shore where they were heading. See, when we have trained our hearts, when we've trained our hearts to hear and listen for Jesus' voice, we will start hearing him say more and more, it's me, I am, don't be afraid. It's me. 
I am. Don't be afraid. And you'll start expecting him in more and more places. And one of the brilliant things about Jesus is that he doesn't just give us teaching, right? In the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about worry and about you, you can't add a day to your life by worry. He gives us teaching, but he also gives us practices. He gives us precepts, but he also gives us practices. It's part of the reason why I wanted us to read all the way back to verse 14 in the scripture reading this morning and see Jesus withdrawing into the wilderness to be with his Father, because Jesus models this throughout his earthly life as a human being. Is he's constantly withdrawing to be alone with the Father. He's training. That's how he could resist the crowd's temptation to make him king without the cross. He's been training to hear the Father's voice, and we can do the same. We can follow not only Jesus' precepts, his teaching, but also his practices, his example of spending time alone with the Father, of reading the scriptures, of spending time in prayer, of journaling, of solitude, of learning to listen for and hear his voice. We can certainly do that alone, as Jesus said. We also do that corporately together. It's one of the reasons we gather. It's why we get together every week, to hear and be reminded that Jesus is always with us, to hear his word proclaimed, to sing the truth of the gospel over one another in song, to be reminded in the Lord's Supper of his sacrifice for us, of the forgiveness of sins, of the hope that we have. All these are ways of training to expect Jesus in all of life but in particular when we're afraid. When we're afraid. A couple other ways of training. You can read a good book on fear, anxiety. We mentioned too, Afraid of All the Things uh, already, as well as Sissy Goss' book, Raising Worry-Free Girls. It's a great book. I mean, she specifically focuses on girls, but if you have kids or even just for yourself and understanding your own story. There's lots of other great books out there. Another way too is you might find yourself here this morning where you have battled with and wrestled with anxiety to a level where you feel like, I just can't even begin to know how to escape this. And part of training to hear Jesus say, I am, do not afraid for you, might look like going to see a counselor. Someone who can, can help you to engage. And maybe that's even a way, if you've been resistant to going to see a professional counselor, to reframe that in your mind, to say, this is part of my training. I actually need someone to help me to hear, to break through the noise, to be able to hear Jesus' voice say, I am. Do not be afraid. And if you, if you find yourself in that place, I encourage you to reach out to any of us on the pastoral team. We would love to connect you with someone that we trust in the counseling field. You could say, yeah, Let's do some of this work. Understand your story and the things that might be preventing you from hearing Jesus say, I am. Do not be afraid. So a question for us to reflect on this week. Where do you need to look for Jesus? Where do you need to look for Jesus? Where do you find yourself not expecting Jesus? Uh, my wife, Rachel, just came back from the Gospel Coalition Conference, Women's Conference, this week. She just got back last night, and I was asking her about the event. And she said the one thing that she's going to really kind of cling on to that was a, kind of one of her big takeaways was Ruth Cho Simons made a statement that just said, our anxiety points us to where we don't yet fully trust God. How might you just pay attention in your life to those places of worry, fear, anxiety, as opportunities to expect Jesus to come to trust him more fully.
And this morning, I want you to actually imagine those places. If it's helpful to close your eyes, you can close your eyes, but I just want you to, to imagine where is the place where I need to expect Jesus? Situation at work, your family, your health, your kids, I don't know what it is, but imagine this, like, where do I need to expect Jesus? Where am I not expecting him? Where am I not experiencing him? Just imagine that place, and now I want you to imagine Jesus in that moment, in that situation, in that place saying, I am. It's me. Do not be afraid. It's going to be okay. I am. It's me. It's going to be okay. Don't be afraid. I want you to keep that situation, that scenario, that person, that problem in your mind. Keep imagining Jesus speaking to you. It's me. It's going to be okay. You don't have to be afraid. As we learn this new song together.